Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm asking questions submitted by listeners to the director of the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Dr. Tom Inglesby. Let's listen. Thank you very much, Dr. Inglesby, for joining me for our weekly Q&A session. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Okay, let's start with what's new this week in the world of COVID. So let's see, in the US, what's new is that it seems like we are reaching a sort of national plateau or a peak in cases, which is good news. And um, it seems like that's the case in many states around the country. In other parts of the world, it does appear that, like, for example, in Spain and Italy, that uh, those countries appear to be a few days past peak and their cases are coming down. It's not to say that the numbers of daily cases aren't still high in the US and in those other countries, but it does seem like the social distancing measures that have been put in place in, in these various countries do seem to be having a serious impact. So that's all good news. And I guess the other thing that's new is that with that bit of, of good news that we might be reaching a plateau, there is a lot of discussion by governors in the US about conditions around restarting economies and opening businesses back up, which is good in terms of beginning to plan through it, but also challenging and particularly and, and potentially a problem if uh, governors decide to move too quickly because we could recreate conditions that uh, we had back in March where we had exponential spread of disease. So we need to go quite cautiously with public health principles in mind. Great. Um, what are those principles? Well, in, if we're going to, first of all, we need to make sure that the conditions for a easing of social distancing are, are in place. And what we think in our group is that those conditions are two weeks of downward numbers and cases and uh, extensive testing capability within a state, especially same day testing capability. We also think it's really important that hospitals are well prepared for potential rebounding cases. So I have the right PPE and the right capacity. And then uh, we also think it's important, very important to have case identification and contact tracing capability built up in states and localities around the country. So if we do get cases, we can identify them quickly and trace contacts and try to try to manage the outbreak that way. Once those conditions are met, I think the, some, of the, some of the principles that are important to bear in mind for reopening are, are first, that the disease hasn't changed. And so if we reopen too quickly and people gather in large numbers, we're likely to see a reemergence of cases. So anyone who can continue to telecommute should, if, they're not, if it hasn't disrupted their job, people should be wearing cloth masks because of their potential to reduce inadvertent spread not because we think it's necessarily gonna be protective, but because it may, may reduce the burden of uh, virus that someone either coughs or sneezes or 
speaks out um, into the world. And um, to the extent that people can institute any kind of physical distancing at work, more spacing than they have had in the past where they're separated by some distance, perhaps with physical barriers, if that's at all tenable, that makes sense. Outdoor spaces are less risky than indoor spaces. Large indoor congregate settings are going to be more risky. And we will still need to be very careful about intimate gatherings like birthday parties, funerals, church, where people are very closely interacting. So it's not going to be back to normal right away? No, it's not. If it is, then I think we're going to get into trouble quickly. Got it. Okay, I'm going to turn to some of the questions we got at publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. You ready? Yep. Okay, does the virus cause male sterility? Uh, no information on that so far. I think, I mean, the, if it causes critical illness in someone to the point where they have organ failure or they have kind of interference with their normal endocrine system, it's possible, um, like it is with other critical illness that could, in theory, cause trouble with en endocrine disruption. But in general, the virus, we haven't found that to be the case as a direct, direct effect of the virus. Got it. What about the sense of taste? Yeah, uh, it's been a, a uh, reported phenomenon that an a important minority of people have loss of sense of smell or taste, and we don't really have good numbers around that, but it's definitely a signal that's, that we've seen in many places in the world. People are talking about some COVID tests having false negatives. Is that a problem, and what does that mean? Yeah, a false negative would uh, mean that you actually have the disease, and you get a test back that's negative, and so it's a falsely negative test. It should have been positive, and um, we are going to need. It's important to know, you know, what people call the operating characteristics of any any individual test. Does it give you false negatives? Does it give you false positives? And at this point, there is no centralized database that says this test developed by this laboratory has this number of false negatives, this number of false positives. In general, PCR testing is fairly reliable, but there are going to be false negatives and false positives. And we know that in the clinical setting that doctors and nurses are reporting that they are developing a sense of the illness so that there are times when they see a negative test and they say, it's so clearly compellingly COVID on CT scan or in the way someone's, the way someone's behaving clinically that they just decided that it seems like a false negative test to them and they're going to proceed on the assumption that it's a positive test. So no test is perfect. Um, these tests in general are pretty good. It would be better to have more information about the operating characteristics of all the tests. Can you compare hospital-acquired COVID with community-acquired COVID? Is COVID acquired in the hospital, say by a healthcare worker, more severe? Uh, I don't think there are, there definitely are not hard and fast rules on this at this point. It is possible that, uh, or we do know from infectious disease in general, that the higher the inoculum size, the higher the number of doses of, of particles that you get, the higher amount of virus that you might get exposed to at any one time corresponds with more serious disease. For the most part, in real life, we have no idea what our inoculum size or what our exposure actually is. So we're never, you know, in normal life, normal practice, we're never going to have any idea. But in experimental settings, in laboratories, if you give someone a lot of virus as opposed to a small virus, their reaction is going to be more serious. So in principle or in theory, if you are in a hospital and you're doing some kind of procedure where you're generating a lot of virus because of that medical procedure, some kind of 
either an intubation or where in, in, during the intubation process, a lot of virus can be expressed into the air or a nebulizer treatment in the hospital. Or early on in China, they were doing surgeries, ENT surgeries on people who were infected because they didn't know they were infected. And those people appeared to get very high doses and had, had pretty serious illness. So it's a, a theoretical possibility, but we certainly don't, we haven't seen large distinctions between the severity of the healthcare workers versus the severity in the community. I think what we are seeing is age and underlying conditions are the things that really drive the severity of illness most frequently, with obvious exceptions that there are healthy people, healthy young people on occasion that are getting serious or even fatal illness. Is the slowing down of the number of infections in the United States due to the social distancing that's been put in place, or is it just that we overreacted and put the social distancing in place and it was never going to be that bad? All the evidence that we have so far is that when social distancing measures have been put in place in various places in the world, that somewhere in the order of three to four weeks after those measures have been put in place, we begin to see the peak and then the downward turn of the disease. In the absence of social distancing, uh, we saw in China that numbers kept going up and up and up over time with exponential growth. The same was in Italy until Italy began to put its social distancing measures in place. In the US, we had the benefit of seeing those things happen in the weeks before we started having more disease in the US. And so we put in measures relatively quickly with the occurrence, with the discovery of disease. It could have been sooner, but in any event, now we are about four weeks after, or a little bit more than four weeks after social distancing has been put in place in most places in the US. And it does, we know from cell phone data that there was a dramatic reduction of movement by people in that period of time. So it's a real, true reduction of movement. And we know that this virus, without social distancing measures in place, each case, the virus has spreads to an average of two to three others. And then the next generation, those two to three spread to two to three others, and so on. Every five days, there's the next jump. So the only things that we have to slow this virus down at this point, since we don't have a proven therapy and we don't have a vaccine, the only thing we have is to, to diminish social interaction, diminish the chances of that virus moving from person to person. So yeah, so social distancing is working by all measures that we have. Um, and we do not think that, for example, such uh, the population has been exposed in such high numbers that there's any herd immunity at this point. Got it. Thank you. Should people on immunosuppressive drugs stop taking their medications? they should talk to their doctors about it because they're different kinds of drugs. They're, they're on them for very different kinds of reasons. It may be some of their doctors think that the, the risk benefits suggest that they should stop and others say, no, it's too dangerous. You should stay on. We get, that's a, a totally understandable. We get a lot of questions from people who are on immunosuppressive drugs or have, you know, serious chronic conditions. And a number of them ask whether they're going to be stuck at home much longer than people who may be able to come back out when uh, some of the restrictions are lifted. Do you think that's likely? I think it's a possibility. I think it will depend on what the underlying condition is. As we move along in the epidemic, we may learn more about one underlying you know, immunosuppressive condition versus another. One's at much higher risk. One seems to be at a risk that's closer to the general population. It also may be the case that in some places in the country, 
the incidence of disease is so low over a period of time that the risk of people going out is considered to be relatively low. But for the time being, I think anyone in that category should consider themselves to be at highest risk and would be should be very, very careful about um, being in any kind of social interaction outside of their homes. Got it. Now, um, there was a study reported out of South Korea that maybe the virus can reactivate. Can you maybe talk about that study or more generally the question of whether people who get illness should expect to be immune or maybe are they actually susceptible to going through this all again? So there are a lot of unanswered questions about that so far. In terms of Korea, that it, the report that came out of Korea, the majority of, of people in public health and medicine who've been working on or thinking about COVID at this point still believe that that probably reflects a testing phenomenon, that perhaps they got tested as negative, but because their the, uh, viral burden was low, a little bit below the threshold of detection, but then when they got retested, they still had the presence of viral RNA in their system, but weren't having any actual replicating virus or minimal disease. But there hasn't been compelling evidence of someone getting sick and then getting better and then getting clinically ill again. There have been a few cases where it's they people probably were considered recovered a little too soon and weren't truly out of the clear yet. But in terms of actual second infections after complete recovery, there isn't a really compelling story for that yet. And we hope it doesn't occur. And in general, do you think if people are sicker and recover, they're more likely to be immune afterwards than someone who maybe didn't feel any symptoms at all? That's another question. It's possible. I don't think we know yet. That is one of the open questions around immunity, whether a worse infection gives you a better immune response in this disease. We, We first of all don't know for sure that immunity follows infection. We believe, given what we learned about SARS and MERS, that there does seem to be some immunity provided by infection, but for the duration of the immunity and the strength of it and whether or not a severe case versus a mild case will will affect that, we don't have any information on that yet. Here's just a couple more quick questions. There have been more cases in the Northern Hemisphere than the Southern Hemisphere. Does that mean anything to you? No, not not yet. I mean, it, it's 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 meaningful to it's good to know that, but I think the testing capacity in the northern hemisphere is much higher than in the southern hemisphere, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. There is uh, comparatively far less testing going on at this point. In some countries, really, the people who are getting tested are returning travelers or their close contacts. So we don't. It's not. A, it's not an apples to apples comparison. We just don't know yet. It's also possible that that it is there is some rea- some some truth to the distinctions in the sense of perhaps travel patterns early on between China and the U.S. and China and different places in Europe, where the number of travelers was higher in between those countries. That's that should over time go away as a variable, but may have made a difference in the beginning and may have made a difference in how people, the, the testing strategies of various countries. But over time, it, it doesn't appear that any country is particularly privileged in the sense of being more immune to this virus or being in a different environment that will protect them from this envir- virus. We hope that's the case, but at this point, we just don't see any evidence that countries aren't going to be largely susceptible to it like the U.S. 
Got it. Is it possible that some people may get exposed and have such mild illness, but still form antibodies and be prevented from getting a more serious infection? Yes, uh, that's definitely a possibility, and we hope that that is you know going to be a large phenomenon. But we don't have any we don't have any evidence of that yet. We're going to start learning a lot more about that soon because these tests called serologic studies or serologic surveys are going to begin. Um, they already are underway in various parts of the world. And we will see there what percent of the population has been exposed by a certain date. So a, ser a serologic survey is done in April, the first week of April. If that is done in a certain country, we will see at that point that X percent of people in the country have been exposed and have antibodies showing exposure. What we will then need to find out is whether that antibody test correlates with immunity. And uh, right now, there are lots of different antibody tests being developed by many different research institutions, and they may not all be the same. So we're going to need to have make sure that our standards are correct and that uh, we have as much evidence as possible that an antibody test actually means immunity. Especially if people are going to go back out and put themselves potentially at risk. Exactly. Yeah, if they're going to bank, if they're going to actually risk their health on the basis of antibodies, we need to know a lot, and we need to have the FDA involved in the United States. Last question. We have a flu vaccine every year um, with a new flu strain. So why is it so hard to get a coronavirus vaccine? Well, we, um, we use the same flu vaccine strategy every year. It's been, it's been developed over many decades. We know uh, the dose of the antigen required, or the protein required to cause immunity. And we, we know basically how to swap in and out the, the latest strain and use otherwise use the exact same systems that we have developed over many decades. We don't know yet what uh, system will work best to create a vaccine or what, what vaccine candidates will be safe and not cause side effects. We don't know what vaccine candidates will cause the right level of immunity, what dose will be required. So we're really starting from scratch with the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, we, we have a lot, a lot to learn with the COVID vaccine. Got it. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Inglesby. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.